Okay, so we, uh, we did the Sermon on the Mount. We finished the Sermon on the Mount, which was awesome. We did the missional discourse where Jesus sends out his disciples into the world and he tells them what to expect and, and, uh, and how to do that and how to go. And then a few weeks back, we got into the parabolic discourse where Jesus um, is preaching an entire sermon using parables. And uh, he opened up, we opened up talking about why he did this. And it was kind of surprising. We generally think of parables as ways to kind of bring the scripture alive and make it more understandable. He actually said that, that uh, it, it works the opposite way, that those who are not invested in the kingdom, these things go right over their heads. He said that those who have more will be given than those who have not, even with the hell will be taken away, that, that these, these parables kind of give God a hiding place um, where we can kind of seek to find him. And then uh, we got into the parable of the sower. Um, we talked about the different kinds of soil and, and the fruit they bring forth, the wheat and the tares, and Jesus' kind of surprising um, conclusion that even though there, he knows that there's weeds mixed in, that it's not our job to separate. It's not our job that's above our pay grade to figure out who's in and who's out. He said, Let's let them grow together and, and let, some, let somebody above you sort that out. So it's not our job to, to play the who's in, who's out game, who's saved, who's unsaved. We just love people and let, uh, and let uh, God sort them out. Um, we talked about the seed and the yeast a couple of weeks ago and how Jesus stresses the weight of potential, that he's not necessarily making a sermon about how tiny the seed is, it's how huge the resulting plant is, that he talks about the weight of potential of his word. And when his word comes, it has this amazing potential to do things. And we talked about how the seed was this outward thing, that the seed created this tree that blessed even the birds around it, that it was this kind of this outward blessing on the whole environment. Um, and we talked about how the church is that way. The church is this this kind of force for good and has been throughout history. When you think of all the hospitals and, and uh, universities and soup kitchens and AA meetings and just all the things that the church has done throughout the years, it's always been this force for good that came from these 12 crazy people, you know, way back when. But also we talked about how the yeast was different. The yeast was less about this big outward thing and more about this invasive thing. He says that she put a little bit of yeast in the flour until all of the flour was leavened. And we talked about how the the kingdom of God also goes inside of us and leaves no stone unturned. It works on everything inside of us and it's completely and utterly invasive in our lives. That there's nothing in our lives that the kingdom doesn't want to affect and change. Um, And then last week we talked about, oh, and then when we talked about the seed of the wheat, we also talked about the stages of growth. We've been kind of on a process thing because there's been a lot of agricultural uh, parables here and that agriculture always speaks to process. There's always a seasonal kind of thing. And we talked about the harvest and how this is the thing we all love. And um, we all, that's what we write books about. We write books about the harvest with the, the dream that came true, the business that did well. Like we focus on the harvest, but before the harvest is this growth season and it's the longest season, this, the season of preparation, you know, that, that happens where the the plant is growing and growing and growing, but hasn't produced any fruit yet. And, uh, and then we also talked about that early stage, that really frustrating stage. We call it the invisible stage. When you put the seed in the ground and you know it's there and you come out the next day and it's still dirt. And so you water it and you come out the next day and it's still dirt. And it's, and it's that scary stage when you're wondering, did God really put this seed in my heart? Did God really speak this to me? Because I'm seeing nothing but dirt, you know, until you get that first little spring of growth. So we talked about those stages. And last week we did the pearl and the treasure. We talked about this kind of um, 
unbelievably valuable thing that, that these two people find. And, and one was seeking, one it says was a merchant who was seeking pearls and found the great pearl. And we talked about the, the uh, you know, that, that it's like those who are, uh, we actually talked about Cornelius and how Cornelius was actually seeking God. He was seeking the Jewish God. And, and in his seeking, he found Jesus. Uh, the Holy, an angel came and told him to, to, uh, to call for Peter and get the rest of the story. And then we also talked about the guy that found the treasure wasn't even looking. He was just in a field and found a treasure and he bought the whole field. And we talked about how both people, it cost them everything. It cost them everything to buy this treasure. It cost the pearl, the merchant, everything to buy the pearl and the, the man, everything to buy the field. But it also, they had just enough somehow. That's something we sometimes miss that they both just happened to have just enough. Everything they had happened to be just enough to purchase it. And we, we talked about how the flip side of, of it costing us everything is that God never asks for more than we can pay. He asks us just to give what we have and that's always just enough. Um, so we talked about recognizing the value of the kingdom. And tonight we're getting into uh, this dragnet. And this is, a, this is kind of a weird one. It's, it's a little bit tough to get into. Um, and it makes me think of Esther's grandpa. Esther's grandpa was a, a shrimp boat captain. That's what he did for his entire world. He was a commercial fisherman. He had his own shrimp boat, and he was the captain of a shrimp boat, which, of course, anybody our age thinks of bubblegum shrimp, right? We would, like, just assume, no, nobody, just me. I'm the only person that watches secular movies, I guess. You guys are too holy for that. What, Forrest Gump? Yeah, he was a shrimp boat captain, right. Yeah, so that was Esther's grandpa. He was a shrimp boat captain. And uh, and so when we first got married, Esther would tell me about how when she lived in Florida with her grandparents, um, they lived there for like a year, that they ate seafood like it was ground beef up here. Like, and, and it was because he would, um, they had a huge market for shrimp and lobster. And anything, any shrimp they got up got sold. There was a huge market for that. But the guys would always bring coolers. And after a, you know, a, a trip out a week or however long they were out catching shrimp, they would divvy up all the rest of the fish that they knew that they weren't going to be able to, to sell. And so they would just take home coolers of fresh catch ocean fish. And they just ate it every possible way you could, you could eat it. And it just got me thinking. So when I read about this dragnet, this, this, that uh, he cast out and just brought up all sorts of stuff, I couldn't help but think of these stories of Esther's grandpa. You know, you can't choose when you're net fishing, you can't choose what comes up in your net. That you get just a little bit of everything and some can be used and some can't. Which made me wonder who gets to pick. Like who? It's so weird the thought of because she said there was times when there was no market for mahi mahi, which is delicious, and so they would catch dolphin fish and take them home and eat them because there wasn't really a market to sell them. Which I was like, it's absolutely crazy because that's now right right now that's like the big catch. That's what everybody wants. So it's it just made it feel like this strange arbitrary um, process, which made me think of this idea of sorting. That this this idea of and obviously this parable, Jesus is talking about kind of the end of the age and this, this kind of cosmic sorting that's going to take on. But it made me think of just, and, and he does stress like the wheat and the tares, that it happens at the end, that the net just grabs everything, you know, that the net's not super selective and that, you know, the sorting again is kind of above our pay grade. That's something that we don't really do. It, it happens, but it's not for us to figure out. But... um the obvious conclu- conclusion of this um, is that a sorting happens, that there's some kind of sorting. And, and, uh, and it couldn't help me think about our lives right now. So this is going to be a little bit of a practical message, a little less of a, of a you know, study and a little more of just a, a practical thing. 
Um, Because we today are absolutely and utterly overwhelmed with stuff. I think we have too much stuff, whether it's material stuff or just information. We are like this dragnet. We just pick up absolutely everything. And if we don't sort it, it can overwhelm us. And so, uh, and it can actually become dangerous. And the Bible is huge on, on this idea of choosing, this idea of sorting. Moses said, I, I offer you today life and death. Like when he stood up on the mountain and gave his speech, I offer you life and death. Joshua came not long later and said, choose you this day who you will serve, the God of Israel, the gods of the land. But me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Um, Elijah did it with the prophets of Baal. He said, this day we're going to decide, is it Baal or is it Jehovah? Like it, and so there's always been this kind of, choice we have to make. Jesus did it. There was times when he said, hey, any man that sets his hand to the plow and makes that decision and turns back isn't worthy. Like you can't choose both at the same time. It's got to be either or. One guy said, hey, I want to follow you, but I have to go bury my parents, which feels pretty important. He said, let the dead bury the dead. Like once you're on the mission, that's the choice. So much of the Bible is about choosing. And uh, most of us, myself included, have kind of lost the power of sorting. Today, what happens is we just kind of let everything in. We just kind of just unfiltered information and junk that just floods into our lives. And I'm terrible at this. So this week, um, as I was meditating on, on kind of what criteria um, we might use to sort, I, uh, I think I forgot to put it on my... Whoops. Oh, we didn't even see the second half. Oh, well. Um... God started working on me and he, and he kind of brought up some things that he's been kind of digging into my life. And like I said last week, my favorite part of being a preacher is that when God picks on me, I get to come up here and just dump it on you and he can pick on you too. So we, we all go through this together. But so um, I came up with three kind of criteria that I think would help us, three means of sorting that I think we need in our lives. And the first one is quantity versus quality. Today we have this perception that a lot of choices is the same as good choices. You know, like anybody remember when cable came out? I think everybody here should remember when cable came out, like when it first came out. And it was like overwhelming. Like it used to be like we had like six channels and, and your only choice was which one gets better reception. Like really, I don't even like the stuff on channel nine, but it's the only one that comes in super clear. So that's what I watch. Like there were no choice. Then I remember when cable came out as a kid and I just like sat there and it was like, it takes me like three minutes to get all the way around. This is incredible. Like, you know, that had choices. And now we have streaming services. We subscribe to three streaming services and the number of times we're like, there's just nothing to watch. There's just nothing even. And I guarantee between the three of them, we have more options than any video store ever when I was a kid. Like everything in the world is on there. And I'm like, there's just nothing good. I think we've seen everything. Like too many choices. I'm, I'm this way at restaurants. I don't even order for myself at restaurants anymore because I make Esther order. For two reasons. Number one, the, the menu overwhelms me. The, I was like, it would take me an hour to read that. There's so much stuff. And number two, I'm going to like 99% of things on that menu. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've never met a food I didn't like. So for the most part, I know whatever Esther does pick, I'm going to love. So I, I see the menu and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't even, just pick me something. Whatever you want will be good, I'm sure. Which usually means I eat healthier that way too, because she's not going to pick what I would pick. But, and then, have you got, who's been to the Cheesecake Factory? Anybody ever been to Cheesecake Factory? Yeah, like, I made it through like the 23rd page of the, of the appetizers and was like, I'm, I can't do this. This is way too much. Like, that thing's like a novel. I don't even understand how you can do that. And then if you don't like to choose, we just go to buffets, right? That's, which is normally what 
we do with my kids. It's just like it's two lakes too long to figure out what everybody wants. Just just graze, just go. But um, and then it's happening with gas stations today. Like that when you're trying to get gas, you got to decide if you want a car wash, do you want to donate money, do you want a back rub? Like you got to push 45 buttons just to get gas anymore. And then social media is the same way. What's crazy is I remember when MySpace came out and it was this cool new. Anybody remember MySpace at all? A little bit. Yeah, it was this cool new thing and everybody, you, you built your little wall and people could come and look at it and yada, yada, yada. And then Facebook came out and the whole world changed. And what's crazy is there's now like six or eight of them. Like, you know, by the time you Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and Pinterest and, you know, Reddit and just all these crazy things. And every single one of us have been in line somewhere and made it through all your feeds. And you're like, no, what am I going to do? Like I've caught up on every single of my 12 social media feeds and there's nothing else to do because we just have too much stuff coming out of us or coming at us. I thought of this. Anybody been, ever been to Build-A-Bear? Yeah, you got to make, we're giving our kids like you have 37 choices to get a stuffed animal. Like, and you can add, you know, a $45 hat if you want it. Like, like seriously, to get a stuffed animal build better, the kid has to make like 12 or 15 decisions. I was like, what happened? We just gave him a stuffed animal. Like, and now they have to choose, you know, all this stuff. And, and so, and in fact, I even thought about our media. Like, I remember when your options were just five, six, and 10. Like, and that's what you got the paper in the morning. Then you got the news at 5, 6, and 10, and that was it. And really, it was just the local news is all you really had access to. Now, like, you have to choose which branch of the media you want to listen to because you're going to get two totally different stories. We can't even, and that was just, we just assumed back then it was the news. Like, it was just what there was to know. It was just the news. And then now it's like, are you you listening to CNN or are you listening to Fox? I mean, because you're going to get two totally different kinds of news. Like, we can't even listen to the news without making value decisions, not to mention the fact that there's just a 24-7 stream of it. My phone, like, chimes half the time I pick up, and it's just news articles, like, just all the time. And we're starting to figure out that none of it, this stuff's not good. Like, the more, like, the, I saw a big study a couple months ago where they, they, a sociologist did a bunch of study on multitasking. You know, we, that's the big thing now. You can multitask. You can do this. Like, they have that desk now that's a treadmill. It's like you can totally multitask. You can do your work while getting some exercise. And they have all kinds of, of crazy stuff to help you multitask. And they did a huge study and they found out multitasking is an absolute farce. The people who are consider themselves the best multitaskers, I can think in 10 places at once, when they actually test their mental function, their, their reflexes and, and their decision-making capabilities, if you give them two tasks, the, their ability on one gets cut in half immediately. And then once you go to three, they all get cut even lower. It's exponential. Like the more things you try to do, the less effective you are at anything you're trying to do. And so we're starting to figure out, I mean, it happened in weightlifting in my lifetime. When I was a kid, we did like four lifts, bench, squat, deadlift, and clean and jerk. And that was it. And then I got out of it for a while, came back, and there was, you know, oh, we don't squat anymore. It's bad for your knees. Instead, we do lunges and step up. There are like 14 lifts to replace the squat. And, and there was all these crazy workouts. And Elijah, who lifts all the time, is telling me that things are starting to go back to those core four lifts. We're starting to figure out that all these 20 million things aren't that great for you, you know, that too many options. I feel like Jesus, Jesus dealt with it. I think Jesus was kind of the master of this. Because you ever wonder why he didn't just like sweep heal the whole land while he was there? Why he didn't just walk into a city and just like be healed in the whole city? Like why was he selective? 
I've always wondered that, like, like why did he choose to heal some and then not others? And, and we have to assume that he was, he had a reason, that he had a reason why he limited it. Jesus often narrowed his crew down. Like there was times it was a multitude and then there was times it was like 120 people and 70 and the 12 and then the three. There was times he did things that only took the three and there was a lot of times he just went off to be alone. Like he, and there was a, there was one time where there was a huge crowd following him and they were, he had just fed him and so everybody was totally on board. They're, they're with him forever and he started, uh, talking about, ultimately talking about communions. Like unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be my follower. And everybody was like, see ya. That got dark. Like, and everybody just left. Like, he intentionally was like, oh, you think you're here? Let, let's talk. And, and almost intentionally thinned the group out. And, like, and then he turned to the disciples and was like, are you guys leaving? And they were like, where are we going to go? You've got the words of life. We can't leave. And so the disciples stayed. It was almost like he wanted to, like, this is too much. And so he, he pruned it down. So if Jesus, the Son of God, limited quantity down to quality... In the things he did, I feel like we should do the same thing. We should say no to some things. Limit our options. Learn to live with fewer choices. But in order to do that, we've got to get good at our second criteria of sorting, which is the urgent versus the important. And this one almost preaches itself. Everything today is urgent. Everything today is, you know, and I'm, I'm preaching at myself here, so please don't feel like I'm preaching at you. We drive 70 miles an hour down the road and we get angry that someone's slowing us down, you know, that their Prius doesn't go any faster than that. And we're like 70's not fast enough. Like, it's crazy. We carry devices in our pocket that just scream at us all day. Just urgency, urgency, urgency. Remember when you didn't get any calls all day long and you just had to come home and catch up on what you missed? Like while you were at work, you just didn't talk to anybody? I was I worked construction and so I just didn't talk to anybody all day long. And then I, you know, came home and found out what happened that day. And then cell phones came out and that went away. Now you're constantly plugged in on everything that's going on, not even in just your your close circles life, but the whole world. You know what's going on in the whole world at any given moment because your phone is screaming at you, pick me up, pick me up, pick me up. Has anybody else I'm just gonna has anybody else ever had that feeling like your phone is vibrating in your pocket when it's not? Does that happen to anybody? Gosh, I hate that feeling because it lets me know just how dependent I am. Like my body is physically waiting for the next thing. And I'm like, oh, is it? Oh, no, it's just, a, what was it? Oh, man, what's going on? I, th- I thought I felt it vibrate. Yeah, it's a terrible feeling. shows you just how into our psyche that thing has gotten. And everything's urgent. We have to check immediately. Our use of time is atrocious. We run nonstop all over the world for stuff that we know is not that important. And if you aren't sure where you fall on this, I I have one question. How well do you Sabbath? How well do you take one day and just rest and focus on your relationship with God and do nothing? Because that was one of the big ten. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. That made the top ten list. That made like like that. We know that was important. Like we know that was up there with things like murder and adultery. And like that made the big list. Sabbath, resting. So we know it's not, and, and I am, please do not think I'm preaching at you because I'm the worst at this one right here. But we know it was important. God did it. Like God did it. You know one of our reasons why we get baptized, one of the reasons we, we say we should get baptized? Because Jesus did it. Like if he did it, we should do it. Like it's, 
And, and Sabbath is the same way. God did it. If God Sabbath, why don't we? We know it's important, but if I ask most people, you know, if they Sabbath, they were like, oh God, my life is so busy. I've just got so much going on. I just have, every, I've, I'm, everything's urgent. Everything's urgent. And the important winds up getting undone while we chase the urgent. And then skipping it, we do ourselves harm. Sabbath is good for us. It's good for us, but we can't because we're chasing the urgent. And none of us deny that. Almost nobody says, I don't really like resting. I, I just assume, I just soon run and be busy and, and be chaotic. Like we know it's good for us. That's not, we, we don't, we don't not Sabbath because we don't like it. We, we keep from Sabbathing because we're chasing urgent stuff. And it's kind of fun to read the Gospels of how many times Jesus kind of moves um, almost counterintuitive to some things. You know, there's times when there's tons of, min- of like ministry momentum. Everything is going, the crowds are coming. And like if you're talking about trying to move the kingdom of God and start a movement, like he's got everything going and, and, and you know that this is like this thing's reaching critical mass. You could, you could have a real thing here soon. And Jesus gets on a boat and splits. Like and just takes a break, takes a rest, withdraws to be alone, the Bible says. And then there's other times when, when the disciples are like, hey, okay, it's been enough. Let's send everybody home to eat. He's like, no, we're not going to stop the flow now. You feed them. Like, take care of them. Like, it's always counterintuitive. One of my favorite like, stories of this is, is Jairus' daughter. It's from Mark 1, or, Mark, or uh, Matthew 9, I'm sorry. And uh, Jairus, uh, Jesus is teaching. There's a huge crowd. He's teaching the crowd in this, this synagogue leader, kind of a, a big name guy. So uh, this is kind of your chance to get in good with the elite. And like if, if we were thinking of it in terms of, of starting a church or starting a movement, like this is the guy you want on your side. This is kind of a, a forerunner. This guy comes and says, my daughter's sick. Can you, you know, can you heal her? And, and Jesus, who's in the middle of teaching, says, let's go, and just splits. Like, teaching is urgent. This is important. Like, let's, let's go take care of your daughter. And so he, he leaves, and they're fighting through a crowd to get out because there's such a mob there. And, and while they're fighting through a crowd, we talked about this lady last week, this lady who had been bleeding for 12 years, you know, had... had snuck into the crowd. She wasn't even supposed to be there because she's ceremonially unclean. She's supposed to stay clear, but she crawls in. If I can just touch the hem of his garment and she touches the hem of his garment and Jesus stops in the middle of, of everything. He goes, who touched me? And his disciples are like, dude, are you serious? Like we are in a mob. How in the world? Everyone touched you. Everyone. That's the answer. Everyone did. And he's like, no, no, no. Healing went out from me. And he stops and he turns and he sees the woman and she, you can tell she's embarrassed and she's like, I'm sorry, I just thought if I could just touch. And, and he says, woman, your faith has made you whole. We never even learned her name. She's just woman in the story. And he says, your faith has made you whole. And, and, he, and he blesses her. And, and while all this amazing stuff is going on, Jairus' daughter dies. Like while he's stopping and going, hold on, stop. Who touched me? No, no, no. I can't move on. We got to deal with this. This is important. I have, to, I have to talk to this woman. And he, and he talks to her, and, and meanwhile, Jairus' daughter dies. And they come back and say, don't even bother, dude, it's too late, she's dead. And he looks at Jairus and looks him in the eyes and says, just have faith. And so they go to Jairus' house, he tells everybody she's just sleeping, and everybody laughs at him, and he raises her from the dead. 
And, and there's two ways to look at that. There's two ways. You could either say, yeah, it's easy when you're Jesus. You can stop for the important because you know I'm just going to raise you from the dead. That's one way to see it. Or you can wonder how many, like, yes, if we stop for the urgent or for the important instead of the urgent, yes, some things might die. But how many, how many miracles are we skipping where God's resurrection power may be in our life because we're chasing the urgent where, yeah, that thing may die if you let it go for a little bit. That, that thing may not get completed. That thing may not happen the way you want it to, but that doesn't mean God's not going to bring some kind of resurrection power out in that death because you stopped for what was important. I spent some time up at the hospital this week with, with uh, Donnelly's mom, Betty, and, and that's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where whenever I'm preaching on something like this, I always seem to have one of these conversations where it's, it's almost like God's grinding it in. But Betty's up there and most of the complications are because that they're having is because a surgery she was supposed to have eight years ago she didn't want to have. She, was, she decided to put it off and put it off. And she made a post this week where she's had to have both rotator cuffs rebuilt because she was doing something they told her you shouldn't do it that way and she didn't listen and she kept putting it off and putting it off and and she said for the first time in my life I'm looking back going why did I ignore all those things like those things that I I didn't want to take two weeks off work to get this thing fixed and now they're just they're trying to decide if I even have the abdominal wall material to put it back together and build it it may be gone like it may be too late and and I'm sitting there listening to her talk while I had just studied out the urgent versus the important. Yeah. And I think this even comes down to just self-care. There's a, there's a story where Jesus gives a parable about this tree and the owner of the tree comes and says, dude, this thing's not making figs. Cut it down. And the, it says the, the master of the vineyard says, let's just, let's, let's just give it one more year. I'll prune it back. I'll, I originally learned it in the King James, so it's still, I'll, I'll dung it. <laughs> I love that. I'll put fertilizer on it. I'll trim it back. I'll dung it. I'm going to take care of the tree. I'm going to stop looking for figs. I'm going to focus on the tree for a second. And the next year, we'll see where it's at. And it grew figs. Because he stopped trying to get to the figs and focus on the tree for a little bit. The important over the urgent. And this leads straight into my third one because I think it plays in. That's the permissible versus the profitable. And I think this one we only mess up because of our bad theology, really. We're, we get so hung up on the do's and don'ts. We get so hung up on right and wrong. We get so hung up on moral and immoral that we... Uh, that we be, and it's mostly because we don't understand what Christ sacrifice did for us we, we, we don't understand what freedom in Christ really means and so we're we're running around so focused on on right or wrong that we if we can't find something that says this is wrong we assume it's good because there's nothing forbidding it because really all I focus on is is it forbidden is it forbidden or not that's really all we do is so if it's not forbidden it must be okay right that's what we typically typically do there's no law against it so why not but the law doesn't tell us what age to give your kid a cell phone and the law doesn't tell us what age is okay for them to jump on social media and get completely you know into that swamp 
There's no law that tells us how much emphasis we should put on how many people like or don't like our comment on Facebook or whether or not a Facebook political debate is even fruitful or not. There's no law about one of the things that drives us crazy is, is we'll sit and watch sitcoms, which, you know, in my brain, because everything goes over my head, is just fun. Like, it's hilarious, and we laugh and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and we'll watch three or four episodes, and Estherl will turn it off, and she'll go, that main character had sex, like casual sex, like six times in those four episodes. Like, that's what we're just pumping into our home. And I'm like, oh, God, I didn't even notice. I just, you know, it's just... It was funny sex, though, apparently, because it made me laugh. Like, you know, but we, there's, no, there's, there's no black and white law against, you know, what we can watch on TV. A thousand other things that we run into every day that the Bible simply doesn't forbid. And because we're, we're so law-based, right or wrong, we assume if it doesn't forbid it, it's okay. And Paul said, yes, everything is per- permissible to me now, but not everything is profitable. That's a whole different question. Is it good for us? And all the statistics are starting to bear out that teen depression is at an all-time high. America rated the, the World Health Organization, did a big study, a big long study that said that America's rated the loneliest pe- country on the planet. Like when you talk to their people, we're the loneliest country there is. Like we've got all these ways of staying connected now and none of us are truly connected anymore. We're we're getting lonelier. We're getting less and less content. Our kids are, are a disaster. Depression is at an all-time high. Teen anxiety is through the roof. They didn't even used to have measurement. They can't even go back when they do the studies now. They can only go back so far because they didn't really consider teen anxiety a thing if you go back 50 years. Like it was, it was just, you know, being a teenager, blah, blah, blah. Now they have to classify it because we have teens having like full nervous breakdowns and full, you know, anxiety disorders as teenagers. I think a big part of this is because we're, we're allowing a lot of things that are perfectly permissible. You can't find a single Bible verse that says you shouldn't do this. That doesn't mean it's profitable. I believe our constant access to all the drama that's going on in the entire world at all times is not good for us. We're constantly comparing ourselves to other people and their social media kind of front we're debating with our social media enemies nonstop. We're getting these arguments and, and we never stop to say, is this good for me? Is this good for my soul? Is this good for my family, my kids? I think there's a picture that's been jumping out at me lately on how mixed up we can get. It's, this one's from John 5. There's a, they go to this pool and there's this man that needs a healing and he's, he's on a mat because he, he can't. Uh, and, and they would say that every now and then the pool would, they'd say an angel would stir it up and the first person in the pool would get healed, which is kind of that picture of religion, like first, the, whoever's the, the best wins. You know, that's kind of the religious picture. And, and Jesus looks at the guy and says, do you want to be healed? And he assumed he was talking about the pool because he says, I can't. Like every time I try that, every time the, the water stirs, somebody gets in in front of me because I can't walk. I'm stuck on this mat. And, and Jesus heals him. And my favorite part about this, he says, stand up and be healed. And it says, as he stood up, he was healed. And that's awesome. And, and then it says, Jesus says, pick up your mat and go home. And he picks up his mat. And all the leaders standing around, the second he picks up the mat, jump on him. And they said, it is the Sabbath. You cannot carry your mat on the Sabbath. <laughs> like, like, seriously, they got things so backwards that they were like, in the face of a genuine healing, 
Like they, like all they could see was a broken rule. Like in the face of a miracle, they had an opportunity to, to experience a real miracle of God. And they were like, dude, you just broke a rule. That's not right. Like we can, our, our judgment on what is, what is acceptable, what's permissible, what's good is, is just broken. Oh, I think I actually had that verse if you want to see it. It is not lawful to carry your bed. That's all they could see in the midst of this guy being healed who had never been healed. All they can see is it's not lawful to carry that mat. And, the, and this is what happens in moralism. I mean, this is what happens in, when we get too hung up on, on rules rather than whether or not something's good for us or not. Like, like moralism, whatever it is, like everything God gives us to be good for us makes a great gift and a terrible master. I mean, we had that talk about the Sabbath when, when Jesus' answer to this was, was the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a great gift. It's a terrible master. Sex is a great gift, terrible master. Food, alcohol, whatever you want to pick, excellent gift, terrible master when, when we get so bound up in it that it, it begins to own us. And the scariest part of getting these judgments or any of these three judgments really wrong is that we often don't know it until it's too late. And I think that bears out in this parable. Jesus says that all this stuff gets swept up in the net. And, and, and this happens in a lot of his parables. When you think about when he talked about the two houses, the one that was built on sand and the one that was built on, on the rock, like when you think about when and how they found out that they built poorly, was when the house fell. Like there, there was no other, like that's when they learned, when it was just too late to do anything about it. Like you, you build up these two houses and, and the, the way you figure out you didn't do it right, you didn't have your house right, was when it falls. The wheat and the tares do the same thing. He's like, we'll, we'll wait till the harvest to sort them out. Like a lot of times, if we don't sort, we find out the hard way that we chose poorly when things start to fall apart. So how do we respond to this? I think this one ends a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember when Jesus talked about those two houses, he said, the man who hears my sayings and does them. And we just made a list from the Sermon on the Mount of things that that means. It means you're supposed to rejoice when you're persecuted, let your light shine before men, uh, make sure your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, don't ever get angry without cause, Make sure you're not angry when you give a gift to the Lord. If you have a sin, pluck out your eye or cut off your hand. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemy. Go an extra mile. Give your coat away. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Give right, pray right, fast right. Forgive completely and utterly. And don't save up any treasures on earth. Earth, And don't ever be anxious and don't judge. Like That's all you got to do is just do that list and your house will be on a rock, Right? And, the, and the, I think the point of that message is Jesus is the only house on a rock. He's the only one. And that if we don't, if we, and, and the, the point isn't supposed to be of the Sermon on the Mount, okay, I'm going to go try harder. I'm going to build better. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this right. I'm going to really muscle up this time and do it right. No, the point is to say, I'm going to go live in this guy's house. I'm going to move in with Jesus because my house is on sand and I don't want it fall. So that's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. I think this is the same way. I'd like to submit that Jesus' conclusion to this sermon 
is at the end of the age when the fish are sorted, Jesus is going to be the only one standing in the keeper barrel. He's going to be the only one and the rest of us are going to be in the burn pit. And this is the foundation of the gospel. And it starts with the realization that the gospel is good news. News. We, we tend to think sometimes the gospel is good counsel. But it's not good counsel, it's good news. Counsel tells you how you should live. It advises you. Most of my sermon tonight was good counsel. What does news do? It just reports on what happened. That's all the news is. It reports on what happened. It reports the good news is a report on what Jesus did for us. He did it. That's the gospel. It's good news, not good counsel. It just reports. I think one of the, one of the be- most beautiful pictures of this is in Mark 1. We're going to go through this just a little bit. It's a story about a leper. It says, Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now this is, this is touchy because uh, if you know anything about the kind of Jewish traditions around lepers, they, they weren't allowed to get within 50 paces of another person without calling unclean. And most of them had a bell they would ring and, and they had ways of announcing, I'm unclean, stay back, stay back. And so this leper's already breaking protocol because he, he walks right up to Jesus and says, if you'll heal me, uh, you can, or if you would, you can make me clean. And then Jesus moved with compassion, which is also an interesting word. In the, in, the Hebrew, in the Greek, it can be translated frustration as well. A lot of times when Jesus, their, their word for compassion, it's this word we don't really have a good English word for. It's this, this deep feeling from your guts is all it really means. Like in some translations, I think the NIV calls it frustration, or, and then other translations will use compassion. It just means with this deep, deep feeling. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken it, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And we've talked about this, how Jesus isn't just healing somebody. He's actually flipping an Old Testament Levitical process. In the Old Testament, anytime something unclean touches something clean, the clean thing becomes unclean. So if you, if you touch a leper, you have to leave the camp and go outside the camp because you're now unclean. So it's always that the unclean infects the clean. And whenever Jesus touched the leper, and the Bible's always super uh, stressful on this word touch, he, didn't, he never speaks to a leper. You never hear him tell a leper to be healed. He touches them. And what he does is he's flipping that Levitical process where by now the clean thing is making the unclean thing clean. And that's what Jesus does is he, he, he makes the unclean thing clean with his presence. He's reversing that. And he says, he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest and offer yourself, offer your cleansing and offer for your cleansing those things that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And this is where this gets beautiful. And this is where this changes from being just a gospel, just a, a healing to real gospel. Because if you know anything about lepers in Jewish culture, you know that they weren't allowed in the camp. They had to live outside the camp, usually in a leper colony. They usually had these little kind of campsites, almost like little homeless camps outside the city where they would live. 
And if they came in, they had to come in using certain protocols. And I love how this story ends. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places. So by the end of this story, the leper who was living outside, alone, not a part of society, cut off from his people. And at the end of the story, the leper is in the town going person to person, telling them about what Jesus had done. He's, for the first time ever, around people. He's now in the crowd and part of it. And Jesus is outside the camp in deserted places. Hmm. Jesus didn't just heal him. He took his place. He took his place. He swapped with him. And this is the gospel. The gospel isn't Jesus just going around and doing good for us and and just healing us. When that dragnet of time comes through and we're all in the burn pit, Jesus says, not that one. I'll swap with that one. He looks at your life and he looks at my life and he says, no, I'll take the burn pit. Put that one in the keeper barrel. That's the gospel. Jesus wraps up this entire sermon with this statement. Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out his treasure, things new and old. Jesus is the scribe of the kingdom. And in, in, in the context of this ancient text and this ancient culture and this ancient society, using all of their texts, using all of their their rituals and using all of their culture brought forth something brand new. He didn't come in and say, scrap the Torah, ditch all that, we're doing something new. He, he, he brought out the old in a new way, in a way that it was fresh, and then also said, we're changing this. I'm, I'm, I'm taking your place here. I'm bringing forth something new from something old. So how do we respond to this? I would hope we would respond by uh, looking at the way we live, like our deep motive. Because usually when we get the gospel wrong, it's, it's, it's this problem with the order that we do it in. Like Paul, when he would go around preaching the gospel, there was this group coming behind him. We, we tend to call them the Judaizers, where they were Christians. These weren't, these weren't non-believing Jews. These were Christian Jews. And they just believed that a Gentile, when he became a Christian, would... Like because Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, because this, this came through this long vein of Jewish tradition, that this Gentile should become a Jew first and follow Jewish custom and then become a Christian. And so they're coming in behind Paul and, and, and contending with him because they, he, they wanted people to, to follow Jewish custom. And so what they were doing was getting this order wrong. And, and moralism still does this. It says, believe first. Do good, second, and be saved. And that's the order. And so, and I wouldn't even necessarily say they're not Christians because they, they do believe. And they do know that you should believe first. That you should believe in Jesus. And then 
you do good. Then you do your religious observances. Then you do the things you're supposed to do so you can be saved. And the gospel doesn't say that. The gospel says believe and be saved so you can do good. Like in that order is everything. That order is everything. If we're walking around feeling like, we're, like we have to earn something, if that's even in the cards, then you've missed it. Then you're living that, in that moralism. If, if the things you, you do aren't, you know, born out of this joy and this excitement that you're, that you're his, then you're, then you're in that moralism. And, it, and I'm not saying you're unsaved. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that you're not fully grasping what the freedom of Christ is. And when you get it right, and I know it sounds crazy, but when you get it right, the, the things that you used to do out of responsibility that you hated doing, you suddenly find yourself doing out of joy. You find yourself not even being able to talk about the gospel without crying because it's born out of this place of I'm saved. I am saved. I think this order has been there since the beginning. I've, uh, it's, it's often cracked me up that um, anybody know what day man was made on? Which day of creation God made man? What? The sixth day, right. Which means man's first full day was a day of rest. So man's first full day on the earth was, was this grace day. And I think it sets a pattern that we work from grace, not for grace. We don't work so we can Sabbath. We Sabbath so we can work. The order is important. Man Sabbath first before he worked. That, that the grace comes first. It always comes first.